What's up, everybody? My name is Steve Vandewal, and I'm the host of Steve's Cannabis Show. And this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Hashtag Hydro Inc., the number one consumer-rated family-owned hydroponics store in Western New York. Hydroponics is the method of growing plants in a water-based solution. One of the biggest differences to note about hydroponics is that it doesn't use soil. Instead, you use a growing media such as perlite, rock wool, clay pellets, etc., What growing media you use will depend on which hydroponic system you decide to set up, whether that be ebb and flow, deep water culture, drip system, wicking, nutrient film tech, etc. Another difference about hydroponics is that it can be done in the smallest of spaces inside your home to allow you to grow all year round. So what can you grow on a hydroponic system? Well, in short terms, pretty much anything. Tomatoes, lettuce, eggplant, cucumber, pumpkin, strawberries, blueberries, basil, peppers, green onions, spinach, green beans, sweet potato, and so much more. And in legal states, hydroponics is a preferred method for growing the highest quality craft cannabis that money can buy. With over 11 years of growing experience, the team over at Hashtag HydroInc are truly masters of their craft. They offer the highest quality products for the most reputable brands at affordable prices. Hashtag HydroInc is located at 5236 West Ridge Road, Suite 3A in Rochester, New York. Check them out at Hashtag HydroInc.com, which I'll include in the podcast description, or call them at 585-488-GROW. That's 585-488-GROW. Tell them you heard this ad on Steve's Cannabis Show, and they'll knock 10% off your first order. Now, enjoy the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Steve's Cannabis Show. My name is Steve Andewall, and I'm your host. And today's episode, and or t- excuse me, today's guest is Pearson Kennedy Crosby. Pearson was born and raised in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Shortly after graduating high school, he enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. Before the age of 22, he had led over 500 combat patrols in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Pearson is a decorated combat vet that has been recognized for actions in superior leadership while serving in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. He went on to study biology at Bucks County Community College and then civil engineering at Drexel University. In 2012, Pearson graduated with honors from Executive Security International's Executive Protection Program, becoming a certified Special Operation Protection Specialist. He is involved with several veteran nonprofits, serving three terms as the Senior Vice Commander of the Marine Corps League, peer mentor for two veteran treatment courts, and became a crisis intervention instructor for law enforcement. In 2015, he moved to Fairbanks, Alaska, where he became a strong advocate for medical cannabis. In 2016, he was appointed as the Alaska Marijuana Industry Association Veterans Liaison and Outreach Director for the Fairbanks Chapter. And in April 2017, he was featured on the cover of High Times for his work. He is also a successful entrepreneur whose whose company specializes in professional delivery of cannabis products and cash for licensed cannabis business. It's a great honor to have him here today. Pearson, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's, uh, you got quite the resume there. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, somehow everything just, uh, fits into place, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh... I, uh, I have some really good friends who served in the Marine Corps, uh, one of them being uh, Tim Beaver. Shout out to him for, uh, for putting us in touch. Um, I am interested in kind of hearing a little bit of background about your time in the Marine Corps and really kind of figuring out how that led you into cannabis advocacy and cannabis entrepreneurship. So um, can you give me a little background about your time in the Marines? Yeah. Um, so I... 
joined the Marine Corps right out of high school. Um, I figured I didn't, I didn't like, uh, writing too much at that point in my life. It's changed a little bit since then, but, um, no, I, uh, I, I guess the first time I saw the movie major pain kind of solidified my, my destiny of the Marine Corps. Um, <laughs> but, uh, he, uh, so I, um, so yeah, I joined, um, back in 2004, it was a couple years after September 11th, um, being from Philadelphia, I had a couple friends whose uh, mothers and fathers were uh, worked in the Twin Towers. None of none of which uh, were fortunately there. Were fortunately there, so that was good. But I, um, I don't know. I, I it, joining the military was something that I knew I wouldn't be able to do when I got older, and it, I'd be able to do things that I'd never get to do otherwise. Um, so I. Uh, but joined as soon as I was 18, I uh, became an infantryman uh, with 1st and 2nd Marines, uh, got stationed in Camp Lejeune, and went on to the 22nd MEU, which is Marine Expeditionary. Uh, it's a Marine Expeditionary Unit, Special Operations Capable, uh, and the mission of a, a MEU is to be a force in readiness to be able to react at the president's will um, in case of any type of emergency for the country. Um, we're supposed to uh, be in a operating area within 48 hours and be operating within 72. So it's, it's pretty uh, expedient. So you're on call all the time, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, what was it? My first, my first, uh, right before the first point, we were on a, a thing called air alert where we couldn't leave. I think it was 15, 15 miles or 85 miles away from the base for like nine months, like no leave, no, like nothing. And, uh, we, we were, we were on call so that at, at any moment, if anything broke up, broke up or, or started, we had to be, we were the first ones in if something had uh, happened and, Luckily, we got off of it like a week before Katrina, and uh, first time Ninth Marines had to go and, and deal with all of that, which is unfortunate. But uh, yeah, it was a uh, it was. It was yeah. But uh, so I, I deployed with them. Uh, we we got it was a med float where you're working with the, the Navy. You're on a uh, Navy vessels, they take you over to, uh, to the Mediterranean. You just pretty much float around the, uh, that sea. Um, I don't even think we were supposed to go into Iraq, but we decided my, the powers that be decided to, to push us in. Um, and we took over operations of a area called, um, hit Iraq, which is Al Anbar province. Um, and, did combat operations there for for a few months. Uh, went through to complete Operation Smoke Wagon and Operation Co Canyon, which were pretty much moving to contact uh, weapon and cache search and seizure. Um, which we just as soon as we if we found any explosives anything like that, we just throw C four on it and blow it in place, uh, including. Including insurgents, there's a 
there was a group of gentlemen, I think they were uh, Wahhabis, which is a, a ancient, uh, ancient, it's an old school uh, military or militaristic uh, group that, that um, uh, is based in Islam. And they decided to start shooting at, at one of us. And I, I, there's no way they, they didn't know that there was 200, 200 of us behind them. So it was a, it was a quick, it was a quick battle, I guess, a uh, skirmish, I guess you can call it. But one of the, one of the insurgents had a, had a vest on and uh, they, they didn't blow it in time of him getting shot in the face. So we just threw a, stick a C4 on it and blew in place. Um, there, there are quite a, quite a few videos of that, but, um, uh, so yeah, that's pretty much what we did. We, we, we walked a lot. I think, uh, I think a couple, couple guys deemed it, uh, operation starve and shiver because our, our supply chain was pretty bad. Uh, just holding up in the middle of the desert. I think one night, one night or one morning we woke up, my uh, my buddy in a different platoon gets up, starts uh, packing away his sleeping system, and he's like, "What the hell was this?" And he's kicking something that was bugging his that was in, in his back all night, and it ended up being a mortar system or a mortar. Uh, I think it was a eighty-two millimeter mortar that happened to have like a hundred of them next to him. So we had our whole company slept underneath this huge cache of explosives the entire night. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't actually thought about that in a while. Um, but, yeah, so so we did combat operations there um, in, a, in a platoon size, uh, or in a company size element, uh, right, right on the west side of the Euphrates. Then uh, I, I was a team leader at that point, so I started taking out uh, security patrols um, eh, about a month into it. Uh, still, I think I was 19. Maybe, uh, yeah, I was definitely 19. Um, I turned 20 there. So I had a, I had a team leader position, uh, for squad, second, second team for second platoon. But yeah, I went over there thinking I was going to be just a, a saw gunner, which is a squad automatic weapon. Uh, and halfway there, they were like, Hey Crosby, you got a team now. And so I'd never, I mean, I, I focused on, I got, I knew what its team leader did, but I was one of the only people in the, in the company in the battalion, even that picked up a, a leadership position that hadn't been deployed yet. So it was a, it's a big deal for, for 19 year old to, to get that type of uh, responsibility. Um, no pressure. No shit. Right. Um, it, it was, and it, it I had great leadership. Uh, my my platoon my platoon sergeant, or my lieutenant through my uh, through my squad leader and the other team leaders. They were uh, excellent Marines, um, and I still I still talk to most of them today. After that was two thousand two thousand five, so yeah. fifteen years later. Um, but uh, I was very fortunate. I had great Marines. They, they got me through it too. And we, uh, came back, no loss of life on our end, uh, with the guys that I was, that I was in charge of. And, uh, my second appointment, um, was in a place called Baghdadi. It was one of the places that we, 
that we swept through. It's not the not the capital Baghdad. The it, it has an I at the end of Baghdad, uh, which is 25 kilometers north of uh, Ramadi. Uh, I think that's a a city that most people have heard of. Um, so there, I was a squad leader. We had a little platoon platoon size um, AO, which was I don't know. We took a the the company before us took over like this little restaurant and bar- and put barriers up and there was a police an Iraqi police station on uh, surrounding it. Um, and yeah, so we worked pretty closely with the Iraqi police that time. First first deployment was working pretty heavily with the Iraqi soldiers. Um, and that was that was an intense deployment. Um, my second one. So it was uh, my platoon commander, my platoon sergeant, and then me as the first squad leader. I was the third in charge, and we didn't have uh, no, we didn't have much support really. I mean, we were only seven miles away from a uh, a big base called Al Assad um, in Al Anbar, and they were for seven, seven kilometers, you know, like twelve kilometers. That's a long. It's a long time before uh, ground support can get to you. I mean hours um we had I and mean, we had called eod a few times for ied placements and they'd just be like yeah we'll be there in seven hours and i was like jeez um but uh so yeah it was, it was i guess i was 21 then uh we were doing three to five patrols three to five patrols every two days every two squads and switching off security and and rest uh it was a tough schedule. And we had two other areas of operation that we like do convoys to, which uh, further um, exceeded it, really taxed us out. But it was a it was a it was a good deployment in that we we didn't have we we didn't have any KIA. We had several injured, um, but. In our in our platoon, we really we really stuck it out, and it it was uh it was definitely an experience. We had um the the one big time that we had multiple injuries were uh it was a suicide vehicle borne ID that ran that ran our gate. Um, we had we had a big issue with black market oil, so we were on the, we were on the Euphrates, the opposite side of the the um. Uh, side, the opposite side of where we were the first deployment, but they were, they, we were the only civilian uh, capable bridge in 30, 30 kilometers. So everybody came through, all the civilians came through us. We, we were non-military civilian only bridge, so we had to watch that. And every time Bongo truck came through with, with oil, we had to send them up to the police station. They'd usually escort them up. And they'd call in. One time they didn't call in. Somebody snuck in behind them and just had like 2,000 pounds of explosive in an accelerant. Uh, detonated right at the gate and instantly killed all but like two of the Iraqi soldiers, Iraqi police that were getting out of their vehicles that they followed in. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think so. I was, I was sitting there in one of the other squads' rooms watching Office Space. I mean, it was just like 
perfect moment, like when they're beating up the uh, the fax machine, the office fax machine. Yeah. And the next thing I know, I'm just on the, I'm on the floor, uh, fifteen feet, uh, eight to fifteen feet away from where I where I thought I was, and uh, everybody's out. Um, and I had a I had a team uh, a mile off of a uh, mile away from the the base. And this is during, obviously we don't, we don't have any, there's no windows, really. there's absolutely no windows. Everything's boarded up with, with, um, sandbags. And so you have no idea what's going on outside. You got thick walls and sandbags. So you're just, you're just hoping that security is paying attention on the roof and being that the way that they, they ran the gate, they, it made it look like they were just another black market bongo truck and the Iraqi police just, uh, you know, forgot to call it in, um, which was unfortunate because uh, I don't remember how many of them died, but um, yeah, we we uh, collected ourselves um, and uh, yeah, called in the cast back, and uh, yeah, a few of them made it, which was good. We didn't sustain any serious injuries. I, I think I was the only one in the room that at at the time that didn't get a purple heart, which was cool. Uh, I think the worst, worst real injury was concussions and, um, broken, like broken fingers and stuff. So it wasn't too bad. It could have been a lot worse. I mean, there were grenades, like unexploded grenades scattered all over the place. Like the dude who ran the gate was, I mean, his upper torso hit the inside of the, the, uh, gate or inside the, 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 uh, compound. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was wild. One of his feet were in Constantino wire and there's dogs fighting over it. And we got back from patrol afterwards. Like just really, oh yeah, there was a big, big red, like, I mean, probably a three foot circle in the, in one of the barriers where he, where he hit. And for some reason, they were, so it was like, the SOPs then was like, were like it, whichever unit sustained the most casualties was responsible for the dead combatants. So that would have been the, the Iraqi police. And they, they just buried him about three to six inches under underground from where he hit. And so we were, we were walking over that uh, decomposing body for maybe a month, month and a half, which... You think uh, burning flesh smells bad? Rotting flesh smells a lot worse. Um, but uh, other than that, it was a great deployment. I learned a lot from the Iraqis. I pretty much was fluent with uh, with Arabic when I while I was uh, I was there to the point where we'd leave our we'd leave our interpreter um, back at the base, and we'd either I'd either grab like uh, little it's like, I don't know, like eight to twelve year old kids they'd, they'd follow us around and uh you know they'd, they'd interpret for us if i if i couldn't uh, if i can tell what people were talking about it, it was it, it, we we really bonded with the community so it was that was really cool like to be in a in pretty much an occupying force which marines are not trained to do that's that's an that's an army job we're we're pretty much a go in kill everything uh, destroy it all and then let the army uh you know police the police the the local populace uh at least the regular army <clears throat> but we were we were 
you know, stationed there in, in the town. And it was, uh, it was incredible. I mean, they, they would come and tell us if something was up. Like they, they saved my life more than once. It ended the lives of my guys. I mean, wow. coming up and telling us about ID placements and stuff like that. It was, uh, really cool to like, see that they actually cared about it. They thought, they thought that we were doing something good for them. And, uh, it was something that I didn't expect. Yeah. Like the person was not there. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was a good appointment overall. I mean, that, that situation, that was probably one of the worst uh, things that we went through, but, um, it was hot and it was, it was uh, definitely, it was, it was definitely a struggle, but, um, we weren't in like sustained combat the entire time and none of my, we, my entire platoon came back. Um, so it was great. I mean, it was, it was, it was an experience. Uh, and luckily we didn't lose anybody. Um, I still haven't figured out why we were there. If there was a real reason for us to be there, that was, you know, why I joined the military. Um, but it is what it is. I learned a lot. I think my guys learned a lot. We still talk a lot. Uh, well, I always talk to most of them, so it's uh, life lesson now. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, that'll something that'll probably stick with you forever. It's, uh, oh yeah. Um, I mean, it's all about how you take it. I mean, it's uh, I don't. I'm not like I. I uh, I was diagnosed with PTSD when I when I got out. Um, and it's not it's not the stuff that I specifically did like personally like my hands did because i had to do some some serious shit but um it's like the stuff that i had i had to order people to do um especially after isil came through um the town i was in baghdadi was the jump off point for for isil when they came into iraq um so i was telling you how the I was, uh, I befriended a lot of the community. They, they cared about us. They told us when we were, um, when there was something bad going on, like, literally see, like I, I have a picture of three artillery shells that a mechanic pulled out of a, a like a gravel pile uh, that were literally placed there for when my platoon or my squad walked through on my next patrol to kill us. And dude stopped us told us they, they just got planted there and he, he went over and pulled them out <laughs> and, uh, he, and uh yeah so and then, uh yeah so yeah, like fast forward to 2015 and i sold the thing now isis and yeah they pushed into baghdad because there's a good jump off point to the uh, al-assad air base and you know they just murdered and tortured and wreaked havoc on the havoc on the town that that me and my guys grew really close to it was uh that really fucked me up because i ordered my we had we had orders to take every weapon uh the first deployment where we swept through everything we took every weapon they had any any way of uh good people defending their family uh was stripped by us my 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 orders too you know uh come back with bags of uh uh, AK-47 bolts. So, you know, without the bolt, the weapon is, uh, weapon's pretty ineffective. Useless. Beat with, I guess, but, um, yeah, so that was, uh, that, uh, at the time, 
we thought uh, we were protecting ourselves, but we never had any, any, we never really had any civilian. Like I never saw anything where we did something messed up and like we got retaliated upon for, for what we did. I've heard units in other places that would just go and just shoot all like they just, uh, they see a shadow at night. They're, they're, they're lighting that up. We never did anything like that. We didn't find it, uh, constructive. Um, so yeah, no, that, that's something that really, really hits me hard. And it was only recently when I, when I, uh, I don't know, I saw somebody wrote something about the second amendment and how their muzzle loader is efficient for them because that's what, uh, that's what they need for hunting or something. They don't realize that it's actually for like a lot of people don't realize how important having a weapon is and being able to say like we have an arms uh, or our citizens are armed. I mean, it stopped it stopped the Germans from coming here and stuff. And, and uh, I forget who said it, but every, uh, you attack America, you'll have you'll have a, a rifle behind every blade of grass, and it means something. Yep. And good people have good guys. Good people have weapons, and they're trained well, and they, they're just there for the defense of their uh, their family and their community. Um, it's important because yeah, you take you take good people's weapons away, you empower the the, the wicked and evil. And you might as well give them a key to your house. Yeah, you might as well well let them bang your sister. You know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No, it's, it's, you know, it's, the, it's, a, it's a hot topic right now. And, you know, it's, you know, I grew up in rural America. I grew up shooting weapons. And since I was a young child hunting, since I was a young kid and pretty much everybody else in my family, men and women, right? Mostly the men. And everybody is as responsible as the next one. Everybody preaches gun safety, but it's a lot of people who don't grow up with, that type of upbringing or that type of experience, you know, sees a lot of this horrible shit happening on the news and thinks that all people that own guns are monsters and it's just not the case. And that's unfortunate. And, you know, I think, you know, you and I are probably lucky enough to have seen both sides and realize that, you know, you're absolutely right. What's the, you know, how can you possibly feel safe at night if you don't have a way to protect yourself? But it's, uh, oh, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean, it, it, and it's just it, people don't see, people don't see that. If you if you never had to experience a, a a truly evil person in your life, you're not you can't say that you know what you're talking about. I mean, especially like especially with the defense of the um, Second Amendment, like oh they they had muzzle they had muzzle loaders then they were um, yeah, but I like to see somebody defend their. Defend their house with a muzzle loader. You'd be dead three times before you even put the freaking powder in the end of the gun. Yeah, they would just. I mean, I and the accuracy of them are, <laughs> are, are wonderful. Um, and you got one shot. <laughs> at the time when the Second Amendment was written, I think it was, nine, it was 1796. Um, it we had the civilian populace had rifled muskets which were the most technologically advanced military weaponry um if you go by the uh the concept of oh that's what the military uh it was written when 
when we were only when, when we had muzzle loaders, we should have F thirty fives in our backyards too. You know? Okay. And that's uh if you wanna if they wanna try if you wanna try to make that argument, you know? Um so it, it's it's a I, I don't I don't know where it comes from. I guess people are people don't want to have to defend themselves, which I don't want to have to defend myself either. But that's not the world we live in. We we are human beings, and not of us, not all of us have. Uh, we're brought up with uh, wonderful um, upbringings, and both both parents and uh, unfortunately, people are physically, mentally abused growing up, or they. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's it's not a perfect world, and um, is it worth really risking? uh someone evil just stumbling upon your home one day and you not being able to help yourself or help your family i don't think it is i don't think um, it is either and, and it's uh i mean then it goes into like i i'm a firm believer in good training i train every single day with my my firearms uh and i have the luxury of having it range at my house in my backyard so um oh yeah no it really um i i get to train i've uh i've had police officers here um village village vcsos uh they don't really get to they don't really get to uh carry weapons on duty the vcsos are village uh safety control officers so they'll be out in like the rural villages they'll be um uh uh, what's it called? So, there, in Alaska, there's a lot of a lot of places that are fly-in only, really rural. They're still uh, they're still controlled by uh, the native tribes, um, and it the law enforcement tends to stay away from them because they are. I mean, it, it is their their land, um, but they still like they still they'll still call in troopers and stuff like that if there's if there's big issues or anything like that, um, but. It's, uh, it's a different world up here. I mean, it's necessary to have a gun. I mean, I've never seen any. Uh, you, you went to uh, uh, Rochester? Yeah, I live in Rochester now. Um, but I grew up in about 40 minutes east of here in a small town called Palmyra, you know, a very rural town. What, uh, what college did you go to? University of Rochester. So I, I graduated from high school, went to U of R, and then did my master's at U of R, too, and then never left. Okay. Yeah. So, um, uh, did you ever have a, like a, a gun show in the in the auditorium of your uh, the gymnasium of your university? No chance. Yep. They, no chance. They have they, they have one here at the University of Fairbanks, really? and they even have a place even have a place for you to store your weapons uh, when you come in in the morning. Really? Yeah. That would that would one million percent never fly on and any campus around here. Oh, I know, I know. I, 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 was, I was like, I was going to the gym one day. Like, I, I've been up here for five years. I was going in, like, it was kind of close when I first got here. And you see, like, gun show, like, in the, you know, the, like, where, like, the gym, the gym. I'm like, what the hell? What, what world is that? I had to go, had to go in there. I mean, it was an all-out gun show. Um, and, uh, yeah, but, I mean, it's like, like, down there, like, you have, I mean, you have, venomous creatures i guess like uh black widows and uh brown recluse maybe some maybe some snakes like uh cottonmouth something like that 
We don't have we don't have any venomous creatures really. We don't have any reptiles. We have no snakes, but if it's gonna bite you, it'll kill you real quick. Too. I mean, you'll see it. I mean, you'll see it coming. Like bears and oh yeah, wolves and even moose will get you. <clears throat> uh, yeah, it's a, it's a different it's a different different atmosphere up here. We don't have we don't have a concealed carry. You don't have to have a concealed carry permit to conceal carry here. You just have to be able to. Um, you have to be legally allowed to own a weapon by the standards of the United States. Do you have to get um, a license, or do you have to? No, no. Nope. You can pretty much just show up at a gun show or like a gun shop, buy whatever you want, and leave. Right? No questions asked. They will. So you you will get you will. So you don't have to have a license, but they will do a background check on you. I I don't know. So now, don't quote don't quote me on this. Um, but um, about a, a year or two ago, I think it changed to where you could just go into a gun show and just give them cash and walk out with it, maybe do a transfer sale um, form. Um, my buddy just came, got back up here from, he came up from Hawaii, so he didn't have a weapon there. Um, and he, he, you know, he, he's, a, he's always hiking and stuff like that, so he needed a weapon. And uh, he's completely legal to, to carry. Um, he has no felonies or anything like that. Um, and he, but he didn't have a, uh, an Alaska driver's license, so it took him a while to actually get a, a firearm, uh, at least f- from shops, you know, from a from a legitimate store. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's that's how it works. It's it's not anything. Yeah, you just you're able to do it because sometimes a bear runs up on you, <laughs> you know, um, and. Uh, it's everybody you assume everybody has a firearm in alaska i think that's why we're a lot less violent than the rest of the country <laughs> well andy guys got legal cannabis up there right yes we do uh, legal wreck um we we've been we've been decriminalized since 1975 wow um so it hasn't been a criminal offense by the state since uh, 75 um we don't really have a medical program. Like we, there's a few doctors up here that will like give you like a referral, but all that does is allow you to grow 24 plants instead of uh, six plants. So like as an adult in Alaska, if I were living alone, I could grow, I grow up to six plants. Um, and then if you have another adult in the house, you can grow, you can grow up to 12, no matter how many adults you have. So you have to have, uh, you can, it tops out at 12 plants unless you have a medical recommendation, which allows you to grow 24 plants. That's a lot of plants, especially if you're growing indoor. You can flip that five, six times a year. That's a nice little... Can you sell it? No. No, no, no you cannot. Can you gift it? What's that? Uh, yes, you can gift it. You can give up, gift up to one, one ounce. Um, and there's a gray area with, <laughs> you know, taking donations for, like, the, you know equipment and yeah. stuff. Uh, so yeah, and then with the medical program, I'm pretty sure, I guess I should, I should know this, um, but I should know this for a fact, but uh, it, it's, you can, you have like, you can have like a caregiver thing, like where somebody else, you, you're, you're growing on for somebody else with like under their medical uh, re- uh, referral, you know? So it's like, if, if there was a, 
I don't know, uh, another veteran up here that had a medical card. Um, I could be, they could give me the rights to grow the cannabis for them. Can you do that for as many people as possible or is it, is it limited? So I, so my, a, a friend of mine who's actually a, uh, a very, uh, well-known grower up here, he's got a recreational facility. Um, he's been doing that. He's, uh, he's been doing it for a while. Um, and I, I, I just, I talked to him recently and I believe he, he mentioned something about that where they, they're now allowing, uh, multiple, multiple people to be able to, or, or allowed to take in multiple, uh, patients under one roof. Yeah. I love the care. I love the caregiver model. I mean, I feel like I'm kind of torn with home, you know, not, I'm not torn, but like we had, we, you know, when we were doing a lot of the advocacy work in New York, a big, a lot of the pushback we got was regarding home grow. And yeah. That's so weird to me. That's so weird. It's so weird. It's like, first of all, it's like no one's pushing back about being able to grow your own fruits or vegetables. You know, why would it matter with cannabis? And, and it's not like you're using dangerous material or anything. It's not like you're cooking meth up, literally. you know? Like, and and that's, it's like, I don't... So being around cannabis so much in the recreational uh, aspect for me, it turn, it's turned it into tomatoes, really. I mean, I would drive hundreds of pounds of trim or hundreds of thousands of dollars of cannabis to every road shop or every retail that you can get to on the road system on a weekly basis, uh, excluding Fairbanks. I would, uh, so my, I was pretty much over the hill, uh, or over, uh, long road, um, deliveries. So closest delivery that we'd have is, was typically a hundred miles. Uh, it was the first one, and the furthest was, uh, I think, if we went directly to it from here, it would be 550 miles, but being that I was hitting every every shop along the way, it, was, it made it out to be about five, 700 miles one way. I want I want to elaborate on that because I think that's a really interesting business, especially from an ancillary business perspective, which I think are, is probably the hotter, you know, while everybody's focusing on, you know, cultivating or processing or retail, everyone's forgetting about all these fundamentally important ancillary businesses like transport that are like, you know, probably a little, you know, transport might be difficult, but even things that like marketing and legal and accounting and all these non-plant touching businesses are really where I think where a lot of the money is from a business perspective. But before we want to get in, I, I do want to get yeah, an yeah, understanding sorry, of, like no, 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 no. I, I just want to kind of get an understand of, uh, of like kind of how you got into medical cannabis, you know, from, you had mentioned earlier, you, you know, you did have PTSD from the Marines and, um, just wanted to kind of get in an idea of like what that transition out of the Marines with such a diagnosis and what that was like, kind of, how did you get into the cannabis realm from there? Um, well, so I, um, uh, so I, I got back, I got, I, I was, I, I was pretty messed up from both deployments and uh, I had gotten out from like I, I went into uh, MARSOC, which is uh, Marine Special Operations Command. Um, 
they were just starting up like halfway through my, my, uh, my enlistment and they had some really hardcore guidelines to, to become a, a MARSOC Marine, which is a, uh, a JSOC unit now. It's uh, the first JSOC unit for the Marine Corps. Um, so we had force recon, which are a bunch of badasses, And then, uh, we decided to throw our hand in the SOCOM. Um, and, uh, like I said, with the, my first and second employment, we, we trained like crazy. We always had way too much weight on our backs with, with a gear that was not up to par with pretty much any other, you know, like, I mean, we were, we were getting hand-me-downs from, from the army and stuff like that. I mean, at least that's what it felt like. Um, like we, we, we still had like the, uh, old school, uh, camouflage black jackets and stuff. We didn't get, we didn't get our real heavy, like, uh, they're called a level four, a plates until know, almost, almost, uh, almost the time of deployment. So we went from like having, I uh, so I guess there were three A's or four or regular four. So four, uh, class four body armors, uh, it'll stop rifle rounds, not armor piercing. rounds. So like, uh, then we got these things, the, these, these sappy plates that we called, uh, tombstones. They're big, green, thick, heavy, sappy plates. And along with them came two more plates that were our side sappies. So we had the yes, plate in the front, back, and on our sides. Um, I weighed myself one time on a market scale um, in the village that, that we were trolling around. I had, I had 135 pounds on me. Jesus. And uh, I'm sure I lost a little bit of weight during that time, too. So it was, it was probably, probably 135 plus. And we were doing anywhere from two and a half to four hour walking patrols three to five times, uh, uh every two days. Jeez. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's difficult to run in that type of, a uh, that, that without to weight on you, but I just constantly just, it's got to take a huge toll on your body. <laughs> yeah. And then I, then once I got back, I, I started training for, from our sock, which, um, the, big thing for that was uh you know hump uh, humping which is just rucksacking you just you have to have uh, during the selection process you have to have 100 you have to have, excuse me, you have to have at least 55 pounds in your backpack or your wow i'm such a civilian now uh your, your rock and uh minus water you, you had to have uh, i think like three to four uh, quarts of water on you at any time that didn't count for your weight and uh, I weighed your pack. So a, a gallon of water is like eight pounds. Um, so it's, uh, and we just ran the entire time. And it was like three, two or three weeks of just running, trying to find like, yeah, it was, it was, uh, that was hardcore. That was probably one of the hardest thing, like courses. I don't know if you want to call it a course, but it was a assessment selection based off the, the, uh, Green Beret model. Um, and it was just, it was just a breakoff session, really. It was just to see how, how far you can go before you quit or you break. And I made it all the way through. So there were a lot of, I think, I think 25 guys that were training for months with us. 
the first night quit. Wow. It, yeah, I don't know if I can. I'm not even sure if I'm actually able to talk about what happened the first night, but there was a hundred plus people that uh, that started out Marines that started out, and there were not a hundred plus people at the end of, in the morning. <laughs> um, and it was it was a real psychological uh, breakoff session. But uh, back to yeah, so. I, I hurt my body pretty bad. I was pretty messed up psychologically when I got back. When I got back in the civilian world, and you go, you go from uh, being responsible for you know other Marines' lives, millions of dollars of equipment. You have a purpose, you know, um, and a pretty significant one. I don't. I still. I mean, I don't know many people outside of military operation or military service that has anything close to that type of uh, responsibility um like where for over a year i could say one wrong thing or tell somebody to do something or you know have a patrol you know make a bang a left and that lead man steps on a pressure plate ied uh, you know i mean every every decision that I made for my my combat deployments had a potential of uh, either affecting the rest of my guys' lives, whether it kills them, injures them, um, or injures the local populace. So it, it, it's a big, big responsibility at, at uh, 19 to 21, 22 years old. So uh, needless to say, I came back and I was like, well, what the hell do I do now? You know? Uh, they're telling me I'm all messed up. I can hardly, I can hardly, I'm crawling up the stairs because I, I stopped working out and my body just kind of broke down. I like realized all the crazy shit that I was doing over the years. And so like 22, I was in severe pain, both mentally, physically, went to the VA, um, got diagnosed, you know, I had a, a back injury, my hip would go out, my hip was going out of place, which was uh, really pissing off the rest of my back. Uh, and then uh, I started on, I mean, the first day I was there, I, I walked out with Oxycontin and Clonopin, I think. Um, and that just, that just took off, you know, I was, uh, I was filling, I was filling that gap, uh, that, that, uh, that hole that once was a, uh, uh, you know, important, an important young man, I guess. Um, and it was, it was something that was really tough to deal with. I, I think for an entire, entire summer, and this is like before it got real bad. Uh, I don't, I don't think I left my house. I left the couch for an entire summer. Like my, like 20, either my, I was either 23, 24, 25, something like that. And I, I don't, I don't remember actually going outside unless I was like forced to, you know. And it was a, I don't know. I, I, just thinking back on it, it, it's crazy. I don't know whether or not it was just me feeling bad for myself or I just had so much, I had so many drugs in me that I didn't. I, the, the, the doctors were filling me up with so much shit that uh, I was just a zombie, pretty much, and didn't leave the couch. I mean, 
I thought I watched a lot of movies on ship being bored, but I didn't. Yeah. So something that I guess I haven't spoke about really ever. Um, but it, it got really bad. Um, I had this, you know, I need to stop this moment. Um, and I decided to try to get the VA to, to get me into a rehab program, rehabilitation program. Um, at that point, I was extremely addicted to, to opiates, benzodiazepine, uh, sleeping pills, flexorol, uh, skeletal relaxants. Uh, and uh, so needless to say, I knew it was going to be a, a struggle. Um, and they were kind of hesitant to even let me go get into the, into like a, a, what do they call it? A, um, intensive in, inpatient clinic or inpatient rehabilitation program. Why? But, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't admit to being suicidal, um, or that I wouldn't, I wasn't a danger to myself or others, put it that way. Uh, they keep they keep a couple beds open. Like they have to take, if you come in and you say, Hey, I'm, I'm going to kill myself. or I'm going to kill someone around me. They have to take you. So they keep some beds open at the Philadelphia medical center yeah. in that case. But I was, so I was, um, attempting to do this and they'd give me a date. Uh, and, um, so I'd come in and this happened three times. They'd be like, Oh, well, you, you feel like you're going to hurt somebody or yourself? No, I don't. I, I am not. I, I might be depressed. I might be screwed up, but I'm not going to hurt anybody. I am, I am done with that lifestyle. Um, unless I have to. And they, they, they come back like two of the times. They, they, they searched me, put me in scrubs, told me to stand by. And they came back and were like, yeah, we don't have a bed for you. Sorry. Jesus and sent me loose. Um, so finally, I was uh, I, I was fed up with it. I'm like, what, what the hell else? What was my other options? Like, what else can I do? And I go, well, we have a methadone program. And I, I'm like, well, I'm like, I don't know much about it. Blah blah. Like, if it works, it works. Like, let's let's try it. That was probably the worst decision I've ever made. I mean, I got. Eventually, I got off of it, but the methadone program was it was a 20 minute drive without traffic to the VA. If there wasn't any traffic at the time, the, uh, the window was open. So I'd have to go down to the VA six days a week to just take a sip of this little cherry liquid that was methadone and uh, fill the traffic from Bucks County to. to to South fucking, uh, excuse me, South, South University City is about an hour and a half. So six days a week, I was driving an hour and a half to go take a sip of some little red liquid that I had to do in front of in front of a pharmacist. Uh, like Saturdays, they'd have everybody there at the same time and realized that they were selling heroin and crack there. And it would be like a you know, Saturdays would be an hour, hour and a half wait to stand in line to go get this drug that they're here and they're just replacing. They're just like, yeah, well, uh, because you said you're addicted, 
to something. This is our this is our maintenance program. They call it a methadone maintenance program. It's literally just so that people don't go out and shoot dope. But that's what got me on dope. Um, so I, I was introduced to heroin there. Um, Wait, at the facility? They're selling crack they heroin at the facility? At the facility. I actually had a I actually had a journalist from the Philadelphia Inquirer come uh, uh, and stake out the uh, the uh, parking garage. That was right. I mean, you stand at building three, and within 50, 50 feet is the parking garage where people would just sit there in the in the stairwell, smoke crack, and shoot up heroin on federal property, and they wouldn't do shit about it. They wouldn't do shit about it. I even went to the, I even went to the, um, uh, the federal police there, and it's like, what, like, yo, we're fucking sitting here trying to get off this this shit, and they're smoking crack and like selling heroin. Like, come on, you know. And I, so I, I uh, not that I was doing it out of any type of anything else besides, you know, I was frustrated. I, I, I don't specifically remember what day what day it was, but I know I was pissed off. I was worst fucking drive down to uh, down to the VA, and I was like, there's no way I'm staying here for another hour and a half, just drive another hour and a half back home. And I just picked up a couple bags of heroin and ran with it. And I, I still did the methadone clinic for, you know, but I, was, I started started really getting bad into heroin. Um, and I guess that, I guess that's one of my, my personality trait of mine. I got either have to completely excel in, in the situation or hit rock bottom before I uh, decide to change my ways. Um, like once I feel like I beat beat something, I'll go after something else, um, and it works for it works both ways. So I ended up trying to get back into the rehab there after being prescribed to the uh, methadone for a while. Methadone is sometimes harder to get off of than, than heroin because it has such a long half-life, um, especially on benzodiazepine. I was still on clonopin while I was going through the methadone clinic. So uh, I, you probably know this, but uh, benzodiazepines and uh alcohol are the only two drugs that will that could potentially kill you if you um uh, cold turkey them or get off of them if your your body's heavily addicted to it you'll um you can seize out and die from the withdrawal from it um which isn't wasn't actually what i wanted, wanted to happen but and it didn't so I ended up uh, losing all faith in the VA, trying to get me into an in case, in, in, intensive uh, inpatient program, and uh, ended up locking myself into my locking myself in my apartment. I gave my 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 girlfriend at the time my keys and stocked up on a bunch of weed. Uh, it was the only thing I was I was allowing myself to do. I, I still smoke, uh, I guess, regularly when. Uh, while well, I was going through all this stuff, but not like this. I, I yeah, it really got me through the um, the withdrawal. It made it made it possible. It gave me some sense of relief mm-hmm. uh, during a time where 
for a couple weeks, I felt like I was just dying. Like that's, that's what Pearson was dying. That's what was happening. I was hot, sweat, hot flashes, cold sweats, just terrible. I mean, it's, getting off that shit is no joke. Your body wants that so bad. So bad. And, and as soon as you, as soon as, um, and it's the thing, it's like, uh, I don't, I, I guess it works for a lot of people, but I don't, I don't believe, I don't, I don't personally, I can't work with the, 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 uh, 12 step program model. Um, I'll never like it's the day that I, I admit to being powerless against anything is the day that I put six, six feet into the ground. Um, it just doesn't work like that for me. Um, and they're, the 12 steps, the whole, um, you know, religious back, religious backing on it. It's like, if you want to believe in that stuff, cool. If it helps you, great. But if you mess up once, like, let's say you got 1200 days clean because they, they can't, they, they count, they tick mark every single day that they're clean. It's just something that they repeat. You mess up one day, you take a sip of alcohol, you smoke a little pot in some cases, or you, Bang a bang a shot of heroin. You're back to day one, and you know what? Might as well keep going for a little bit, and then start over, and then you yeah. know get to, and, and then get over again. That's where a lot of people die. I mean, they'll they'll relapse and get um, you know go back to the dose that they they uh, they left off at. Yeah. Now they're throwing uh, fentanyl and stuff in there. Well, I mean, I'm sure they were still, but. That, that's that's the main reason for a lot of those those overdose over, overdoses is is the fentanyl inclusion. But I was prescribed a fentanyl 100 micrograms. At one point, I was prescribed two different uh, fentanyl patches with MS cotton, Percocets, and five milligram uh, oxycodones all at the same time. At the same time. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you. I'll send you a list of, of it. I actually, I actually have them on my. my the pictures of my uh, my phone. So I took I took a picture of this. all these. It's like nine or ten of them that are uh, always all active. My name filled up a veteran center, filled up a medical center, and uh, yeah, so there was like fifty microgram fentanyl patches, twenty five micrograms, uh, Percocets, so it would be uh, oxycodone fives with three hundred twenty five uh, milligram acetaminophen or yeah, ibuprofen, whatever. Clonopin, and then like my sleeping pills, and um, yeah, uh, I'll shoot you over a picture of it. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what they were prescribing me at like 20, uh, 24, 25. As soon as I walked out of the VA, um, the first time I had I had a prescription of opiates and a prescription of uh, uh, benzodiazepine. It's you know it's crazy. I I have a similar story, not that intense, um, and definitely not a list that long. Uh, but kind of how I got started in cannabis was you know December twenty seventeen. I was really at a bad point. I was you know the ebb and flows of entrepreneurship were giving me anxiety, so I was put on you know or I was put on Adderall for my ADHD, Trazodone to help me sleep, and the icing on the cake was the Zoloft to help me keep my mind right. And pretty soon I became a fucking shell of myself. I didn't feel anything. I had no joy. I had no purpose. 
quite frankly, I didn't really give a shit about living anymore. And it was that right around that time that I had a friend who's a nurse practitioner reach out and said, Hey, here's this new molecule CBD, right? It's the cousin of C, you know, THC that I, that was all I knew about it at the sec. She's like, you should try, uh, try it at night. See if it'll help you sleep better. It's helping me. It's helping my husband and started taking it the first night. Um, and I had said that time, I was like, I'm going to start taking myself off all this shit, right? Started breaking my pills in half, right? 40 days later, I had taken myself off all the Zoloft, all the fucking Trazodone and went from 30 megs of Adderall a day to five milligrams, like three times a week. Right. And I'm just like, you know, you start hearing these stories. And at the time I thought my story was novel. But then you start, you know, especially in the veteran community, how many guys, you know, that got the same fucking story and some of them probably aren't even around to tell the story anymore. I can't even count how many have died from it. You know, I mean, that is, it's huge. Like the suicide rate, like I, it's crazy. And it's like, man, and it's like, uh, the worst, so um, uh, it's something that I really, as soon as I, as soon as I got clean, cause I had gotten in trouble and I, it was, there was a bunch of factors that, that, that came into play when I got clean. Like I had to get clean in those 30 days or I was going to go to jail or something. Um, but I, but I, 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 shit, I got picked up, uh, before I got clean, I got picked up on a, a DUI. Um, I shot up like dri- pretty much driving. Like I pulled into a parking lot after copping and uh overdosed while i was driving and uh came to a came to a complete stop my foot on the brake and next thing i kind of remember is uh, i was on woodhaven boulevard at, at a stop in the middle in the middle of the afternoon Jesus. in the middle of the road <laughs> and so i got i got uh, i got booked and got uh got sent to uh Philadelphia Veterans Court, um which uh, saved my life. I mean there's many many things that happened uh uh at the same time that that allowed me to not have a choice whether or not I was getting clean or not. I was getting clean or I I probably if I if I had to go to jail during that time, I probably would never have gotten out of jail. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. I don't know that for a fact, but I, I don't know. I guess I, I I'm, I, I don't know. I'm the type of person that, that needs, that, that has to be in control of what's going on. Yeah. Like, hence like getting a leadership position early in the Marine Corps and just, I don't know. My my lady would definitely say it's because I'm a Capricorn or something. <laughs> um, so I guess um, something with the moons tell me that when I was born. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty. Uh, you know, uh, set in my ways. I'm stubborn, and um, I need to be in control because I don't know. I, uh, again, going back to that. The, the uh, horoscope, or what is it? The uh, astrology, astronomy, whatever. She'd kill me if she heard this. Um, uh, I, I, you know, I'm stubborn. I, I need to, I, I believe that I have the right way to do things, which, which I don't think I don't agree with that. But um, I don't think I would have gotten out of jail. Uh, I think I would have, something would have happened and I would have hurt somebody to the point where they had to 
extend my sentence or something or I don't know. I've never been to jail. I mean, I've been in a drunk tank a few times. Yeah. I, d- I did one night in the tank when I was in college. That's, yeah. It, it sucked. I'd never want to do any longer than the six hours. No, I was no, I'll tell you that it's right terrible. Now. And they don't even serve alcohol there. Yeah. And they show <laughs> shitty, <laughs> shitty lunch <Sorry>. too. <laughs> tell me more about this veteran court. What's that all about? Yeah. So, uh, so like I said, I was, um, I didn't, it wasn't like I, uh, I didn't even, I don't even know like where, or I guess the indoc when I got arrested, like the, the form paperwork asked me if I was a veteran and I put yes. Um, and I got a phone call from a woman named Peg Maynard. She was the veterans, uh, justice outreach. Uh, she, she works for the VA and she's pretty much a liaison between the, the veterans court and the VA. So with the, with, uh, the veterans court, um, you're, she, well, she called me and she gave me, she, I had to go interview with her, um, to see if I'd be eligible or if I would be a good fit for veterans court. Um, and really the thing is for getting brought into a veterans court is, um, it, the, the charge kind of, it has to, uh, be related to it, it has to be able to you have to be able to say like oh this happened most likely because of injuries sustained in in combat or, uh this person probably wouldn't have done this if it wasn't for their combat experiences or their diagnoses uh from the military you know um uh, since then it's got it's gone like a lot more liberal in their takings like uh and then back up to like really strict and who they're taking so like at one point i think when i first came in they're really like uh checking to make sure it was really like combat like they could chalk it up to like oh you got you got you know you you got beat up in combat and you have a you have post-traumatic stress disorder and this could have came about with your anger issues that developed because of your traumatic brain injury or something. Um, and then, and they weren't taking like violent criminals, like any violent crimes. It was literally like your first, like it was like a ARD kind of thing, uh, which I, uh, I only say that cause it's not really, it's like first time offenders. Like we don't want you to have, we don't want you to, we don't want this to wrap you up for the rest of your life because you, you swore your life away to the government and you came back a little messed up and we want to be able to give you a second chance. Second, on. Yeah. And, um, which shit I, I, it, I, and I, I mean, obviously I, obviously I agree with it. I, uh, the, the, the amount of stuff that I was able to, the amount of people I, I, that tell me I helped them since then, um, is far outweighs my, my, what I would have became without, um, uh, veterans, uh, diversionary court. So she, she interviewed me. I went in front of the judge. She scared the shit out of me. Um, they gave me a, um, a contract, which was, it was like nine months of, uh, like this program, the program where I go and go in front of the judge like once a month or something like that. I'd have to go to all my, my VA uh, appointments, I have to stay in treatment, I have to see the, the probation officer, Frank Romeo, 
once once a week for for uh, for your analysis um, and do something constructive, um, which kind of at that point in my life was you know actually following through with those <laughs> that 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 responsibilities of, of that. Um, so I got through it. Uh, I didn't didn't even get charged with the DOI. They threw it out. Um, then I, I, uh, I became a mentor. Um, and I, I was going through it all. Like I was, I was in like group therapy. I, I had a lot of support from peers, which, um, uh, is, it, it, I, I can say from complete, uh, experience that, peer-to-peer mentoring for veterans is probably the most effective uh, way of changing their outlook on what they went through. Um, I've never really been able to sit down with a therapist and like talk about like, I I don't know. I'm really big into psychology and I, I like to think that I'm pretty good with like my emotional intelligence well, my emotional intelligence is a little bit higher than my IQ, you know. <laughs> um, uh, but so, like, I'll, I'll, it just turns into like a steep, uh, this cognitive behavioral health, uh, co- cognitive behavioral treatment session, which I don't like because I, I'm aware of what why I'm messed up, and I just don't need someone to keep leading me on questioning. But that's the that's the model of most combat stress therapies uh right now um cbt um and it's just not something that i'm i'd rather i i get a lot more out of someone that i can look up to whether they're a business person or someone that's uh accomplished or you know just can quote some sexy ass words and you know, in sentences and bring up, bring up something that's interesting. You know, I, I, I feel, I feel uh, obligated to the people that, that I have to, that, that take their time to teach me something, you know? And, uh, and when that happens, I, um, I don't want to let them down. If I, and so I think that's something that is, uh, relatable to most veterans. If you, if someone's taking their time, time, out of their day to, you know, kind of coach you or they don't have to do it. Like, like a therapist, like, you know, that's their job. They went to school for years to be that. That's what they went to school for. But you got some Vietnam veteran, you know, he could be hanging out with his grandkids, but he decides to call you or go out to coffee with you and, and really, um, um, you know, take his, take the time out of his day to, to really just care about what you're doing and, and trying to uh, relay some stuff that they've been through and trying to get them, trying to get you to realize what, what if you uh, learn from their mistakes, you know, or something like that. Just, and having somebody to call 24 seven, you can't call your, you can't call your psychologist 24 seven. I'll tell you that much. They're not going to answer. Without, without getting, you know, a big bill at the end of it, you know? Oh yeah. 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 That's why. So you only email your lawyer, right? Don't don't call your lawyer. 
<laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> that's, that's, tip for, that's tip number one. Save it for when you need it. Yeah, yeah. No, um, we're, we're coming up a little close on time. I want to I want to ask a couple questions. I think this is an opportunity for us to have a second conversation, which we definitely should. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm long-winded. No, no, no. I'm also long-winded, and uh, I've been usually my podcast formats are 30 to 40 minutes. You know, I kind of like the idea of, hey, on your way to work, you're going to learn something. But it also doesn't always allow me to get into these conversations and really get to the nitty gritty. You know, it's a lot of what about this? What about this? And QA, which there's a place for that. But, you know, I really love the long form and I want to be, you know, I've, you know, I could probably sit down for five, six hours without taking a breath. Um, yeah, probably. <laughs> I, I, I want to know a couple things, um, and I think the listeners would be interested. Would be one: How the hell did you get on the cover of High Times? That's cool. Yeah, um, uh, I was going to say something dirty there. Um, okay, <laughs> but um, no, I uh, so I heard of so there was a, a veterans panel that High Times was doing in Philly, and it just so happened, you know, I think I like touched down in Philly from Alaska. I get a text message from like one of the like my uh, I guess my 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 my, my uh, good friend Timmy Wen. He he's actually like my uh, me and him were we're both graduates from the uh, from the the Veterans Court. And once we graduated, we kind of teamed up and we um, you know we're, we're partners in good. I guess we, we did a lot of fundraising and stuff. But he text messaged me. And he's like, oh. Uh, uh, Mike Whittier is doing um, a High Times Veterans Panel uh, someplace in South Philly, and uh, he's like, "Oh, you should see if you can get a, get on the panel." And so I just got off the plane, went right over there. Got like, Mike was like, "I don't know, if, I don't know if we got room for you on the stage. We only put five people on there." And I'm like, "You can get me on there, you know?" So I was like, "I want to tell, I want to make sure that people knew." how important cannabis was for me to get clean. Yeah. So we went back to his place. Uh, my buddy Rico was actually, he was supposed to get, he was supposed to get the cover. He, uh, they took, they took a bunch of pictures of him and, uh, you know, had him shave and shit. And the next day they called me and they're like, Hey, yeah, they, they didn't come out very well or something was up with the camera or something. Would you, would you come down here and take some more pictures? Or take some pictures for us. Um, was like, I got to shave my beard though. They made me shave my beard. Oh, um, well, I'm glad to see it's back. Two years later. Yeah. Years so later. yeah. No, it was down. My, it was down on my nipples. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a Viking beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was also like, I was 200, 280 pounds. Oh no, when I took that picture now, that was that was before my powerlifting days. Um. But, uh, yeah, so I, I, that's, that's, uh, that's the story of that. Like we did the panel, met a lot of awesome people, uh, a lot of awesome veterans, uh, and then made the cover that month. We did, uh, the loss the first Las Vegas, uh, cannabis cup. And I actually just got the link to that, that panel last night. From my, my friend, Alan Brown, who I'd met, uh, at that, at that, uh, cannabis cup and, so uh, it's really, I mean, there's, I guess, uh, I mean, there's a lot of good that's come up. Um, the veterans and weed, uh, the veterans and pot, uh, article. And we have, um, a new, a new, um, group that, well, it's not really a group. It's a, it's an initiative that a bunch, 
a lot of the most predominant veterans advocates in cannabis have uh, came together and uh, we're pushing for every good cause possible and we're really just working as a team and uh, utilizing all the uh, all the organizations that we have at our disposal and really trying to hit it hard when it comes to uh, the descheduling of cannabis, the, the access, because we're dying every day. We're dying 20, and I think the last time I saw the VA uh, stats, it was like 17 or 18 a day, which means the first time I, I came in contact with a, a combat suicide, there's been over 95 thousand veterans suicide 95,000 my first experience with uh, combat suicide was uh, one of one of the, the NCOs and in, in my second employment that you know would uh, I talked to him a lot we were newly newly weds you know like he had just got married and I did too um, and uh, I mean both marriages didn't work out but he ended up he ended up uh Finding out his wife was three months pregnant, seven months into the deployment, walked right from the right from the, the call center and on outside airbase and put a three round burst in his face uh, in the bathroom. Yeah, but beauty of it was that the military deemed it a, uh, a sniper kill, and that cheating wife of his uh, got uh, the SDLI life insurance, so she got about four hundred thousand dollars for cheating on him. Jesus you know, Christ. Yeah, yeah. So that's why. <laughs> Yikes, man. Well, listen, you have an incredible story. Um, I I hope that we can have another conversation, even offline, to figure out if there's anything that I can do or my community here in New York can do to help push your agenda and be able to provide better access to veterans you know, to cannabis in in this state and across this country because how many more people have to get addicted? How many more people have to die before we realize that there's a better fucking solution to these pills? Um, I I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, all This is, uh, I really enjoy this conversation. I look forward to the next one. Yeah, me too. Thanks a lot for having me and I uh, look forward to speaking to you again, man. Yeah, brother. Take care of yourself, all right? Nice chatting with you.